Right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 213. Mr. Jason Lingren is here as he always is, and we have special guest Mark Devlin coming in from the UK, where crazy is just as crazy. Uh, matter of fact, there's not too many places in the world where you can't find a good dose of crazy right now. I uh, wonder how long that will go on. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. We just got snow in the state two days ago, um, and we're about to get pummeled tomorrow, man. The weather has been absolutely crazy, and it has not warmed up, and the trees do not have leaves yet. It's insane. You trying to tell me that the weather has some sort of bug? Now, there's something weird afoot in this world, I think. I'm just not sure. No, <laughs> I'm being facetious. Yeah, man, it's strange. Um, the, the, the trees had leafed out. Weeks ago, by the time we were here, the buds had already popped, um, and I'm still waiting for the maple trees in my front yard uh, to go. They have buds. They're just not going. It's just not warmed up to any respectable degree. But uh, do we have anything for the intro here, or should we just jump in? Well, once we can have public gatherings again, maybe we'll start having things. We can have those tomorrow if people exercise their constitutional rights in this country. Um, we were talking to Mark. I guess it's kind of a Magna Carta thing, uh, but I guess as is here, the only thing people know about the damn Constitution is something they forgot when they were in grade school. It's terrible. Um, but anyhow, we're going to talk about entertainment, right, guys? That's what we agreed on. Uh, we'll we'll get into well. We'll, we'll just do it. We're going to get into a lot of interesting aspects about entertainment. And right now, when you watch any given thing on TV, one thing you'll notice uh, in the United States is openly how many channels are the same thing now. Same movie, Harry Potter across five, six, seven channels in the t- same time slot. The big switch off that came in the public eye was something like two years ago, year and a half ago, when I think it's Universal, hope I have that right, uh, put its name on a television channel. But what you see now is wholesale uh, together alone or some other nonsense going across something like 15 channels uh, on cable. Um, I guess Pink Floyd's going to have to to rewrite its old song. I think they claim there was 13 channels of crap on the TV to choose from. But uh, you want to lead us in here, Jason? Mark, as always, does fantastic work and detailed work. And I think that he's going to present some material here that he hasn't gotten into with us before, for sure. Mark, did this get into any of your books yet? Well, certainly the concept of lifetime actors does, who are people that are served up in the public eye and they're handed to us as celebrities, A-listers, household names, and you think of them as one thing or another, a musician, a television presenter, a Hollywood actor, a politician, a business leader... Uh, But when you get into their family backgrounds and you start doing a bit of digging of the type that I like to do, and you look at some of their affiliations and some of the groups that they belong to, it tells a rather different story about just why they became so successful and so influential and so well known. And there really are no exceptions to the rule. You know, as my research has continued, I've come to realise that anyone that is in that kind of prominent position has not got there through hard work and just crossing their fingers for good luck. They've been placed there. We have many examples of this, and a very topical one right now would appear to be Bill Gates, who is getting a lot of scrutiny from a lot of quarters, quite rightly, at this time, because he's one of the dominant names in the current narrative that we have playing out. And most people historically have thought of Bill Gates as that nerdy computer guy who, we're told, started up Microsoft in his garage. That sounds very convincing, doesn't it? And it just happened to become this multinational corporation. 
Lucky Bill. But when you uh, diligently delve into Bill Gates, his background, as a lot of people now realise, uh, you come to discover that his father, William Gates Sr., was a prominent member, I think he was one of the founding members, of Planned Parenthood, which is a eugenics operation connected to the Rockefeller Foundation. And it's all about, well, the science of eugenics is all about phasing out aspects of humanity and the human gene pool uh, that are considered to be undesirable and just allowing those more desirable uh, representatives of society to procreate their genes. And they've made no bones about it over the years. When you look at some of the public comments that Margaret Sanger, who is uh, one of the founding members of Planned Parenthood, she's made comments like the kindest thing that a working class family, you know, she's talking about useless eaters as they see them the great masses, the kindest thing they can do to one of its infant children is to kill it. I mean, I'm paraphrasing the quote there, but it is a genuine quotation that you'll be able to find online. And she's also talked of what they consider to be useless eaters, you know, the masses, as weeds that deserve to be weeded out of society. So this is an insight into the mindset of eugenicists, and Bill Gates is evidently one himself. He's made comments about reducing the world's population, and he's now poised to roll out this vaccine agenda. He's the figurehead of that whole thing, uh, and clearly it was always intended for him to step up and do his real work at this point in the timeline. So I would suggest that being the boss of Microsoft is not his true role in society, but we're starting to see what is. You know, the thing I'd love to know is, how did Nerdy Computer Guy all of a sudden become this worldwide expert on how to help cure people of diseases and things like that? What does that have to do with making a crappy operating system for 80 plus percent of the world's computers? Well, apparently he's been busy doing other things, hasn't he? Well, yeah, it's a very good question. He doesn't have any qualifications in health or medicine or any of the things that he's now being wheeled out on in news bulletins to talk about. And yet he's the dominant voice in this agenda, which tells you a lot. One thing I'm finding very encouraging is there does seem to be a lot of public awareness now of just what Bill Gates is really all about. And this seems to be coming from people who don't normally question mainstream news and who don't normally look at alternative sources of information. But one way or another, they've got to know about the fact that Bill Gates is uh, overstepping the mark and is getting involved in things where he shouldn't be involved. So if you look at any of Bill Gates's social media pages now, they are absolutely bombarded with comments saying, we know what you are, Bill. We know what you represent. We won't be taking this vaccine. You can shove it up your you-know-what. I'm hip to what your real agenda is here. And his moderators, it seems, can't delete these comments quick enough because as soon as they get rid of a whole load, then another slew instantly hits the page. And if you go on YouTube and look at the comments below any of the interviews that he's done, most notably the one recently with the BBC where he was wheeled out last week, he's getting absolutely savaged on there as well. So I think personally, we're getting to the point where anything that comes with Bill Gates's name attached is just not going to fly because too many people are now wise to what he's really all about. And they're going to have to find a new poster boy for the vaccine agenda and various other things that they want to roll out there. His name really is everywhere in this current situation that we have. You know, he's a funder of the World Health Organization. He was involved with the World Economic Forum, which was behind the event 201 event in October. And interestingly, 
Guys, we were all at the Shoot the Moon NYC event in the very week when Event 201 was going down. I don't know if you realize, but we were all gathered, you know, presenting our information and doing what we do. And right across town there, we had this so-called simulation exercise going off, which predicted the very scenario we now find ourselves in. Isn't that interesting? Imagine that. But I got to ask, you know, what you're pointing out here is so important because most people see these famous people and whatever they're showing on TV is what they accept about them. It's not that hard to even open up something as mundane as Wikipedia to look at a family tree. Uh, In some cases, I've noticed it's harder to get back. But have you gone back any further than the father there? Is, Is there anything beyond that that you're aware of? Grandfather, maybe? I've not personally delved into it, but people have told me that they've gone further back in the timeline into the ancestry and they've found connections into the Rockefeller bloodline. So some researchers are of the view that Bill Gates, if you go back far enough, ties into the Rockefeller, uh, the house of Rockefeller. Uh, So that would explain why he has such close ties with him today, wouldn't it, if that turns out to be true? Well, let's offer something up for at least the people in the United States. I'm not sure in the UK. Maybe you can uh, elaborate if you know. But uh, once upon a time, there was Constitution here. One of the things Constitution did said that you could make treaties, but you can only make treaties with other nations, other countries. So the idea of the World Health Organization or any of these other things, they're not nations. These are unconstitutional, these agreements. Um, And this is how little rats like the guy we're talking about sneak in uh, and start eating all the cheese and doing other bad things to the cheese. And these are important things people should know. There are founding documents in this country that would absolutely decimate so much of the nonsense we see going on. But it's gotten to the point here where they'll do things like run ads on TV for this this new testosterone-boosting thing, and they'll get some buff sports guy that everybody knows to say, come take Nugenics, and it cracks me up. Eugenics is right in the name of the product. And I'm thinking, does, does everyone, how do people miss the obvious thing? And one thing about eugenics that Jason and I have covered is the idea of it is to sanitize the gene pool as if someone in this world is God or something. But uh, where do you want to go here, Jason? Mark, what do you think about the eugenics program of the 1930s? How far has that stuck around, albeit under a different name or different names? I think it probably never went away. It's something that people associate with uh, Nazi Germany and what Hitler and his associates were practicing and the likes of Joseph Mengele in all those laboratories. Uh, I suspect that when it comes to the elite ruling class, uh, so-called, this mindset never went away and they found ways of practicing it uh, all along. So as you pointed out there, the idea is to only allow desirable uh, members of society to procreate to advance them and their own kind as they see it, and to let the masses just uh, die off over time. Uh, Bill Gates made a very famous quote at a 2010 TED talk where he talked of doing a really great job on vaccines and reducing the world's population significantly. 
And people have said, oh, well, what he meant by that was that if there's successful vaccination programs in place in parts of the world like Africa, then it's going to eradicate diseases and families who were previously having nine or 10 kids in the hope that two or three might survive in the wake of all these diseases that were around. Uh, if the disease is being successfully protected against there locally, uh, they only need to have a couple of kids. And so that will reduce the population there. That's what uh, that's how people justify that quote. But I think we got a glimpse into his true mindset with that quote. And his like make no secret of the fact that they do want to significantly reduce the world's population. It's right there on the Georgia Guidestones in one of the tenets that's inscribed into those granite monoliths, where they talk of reducing or maintaining the world's population in perpetual balance with nature. And what I find interesting is that the Georgia Guidestones were unveiled on the 22nd of March, which in the US way of expressing the date is 322. And that's an interesting number. 322 ties into the Skull and Bones fraternity within Yale University, which is this secret society mystery school. It's known as the Brotherhood of Death. George Bush Jr. was a bonesman, so-called. Uh, John Kerry was a member of that society as well. I think Bush Sr. was also. And so the Georgia Guidestones get unveiled by a Mr. R.C. Christian, this mysterious individual that nobody seems to know exactly who he was. He put up all the money to get those things erected, and they were unveiled on 322 of 1980. In other words, 40 years ago. So 2020 is the year that we find ourselves in now. 20 plus 20 is 40, and 40 years pretty much to the day after those guidestones were unveiled, expressing their wish to reduce the world's population significantly, we get the current situation that we now have kicking off. I think we'd all agree that around the time of the spring equinox, around the 21st of March, is when things got serious, things got hot in most nations. Most nations uh, went into lockdown during that whole period. So the dates become very interesting in this regard. There's a thing that we should mention. There was a time in this country when being part of a secret society was not a thing that was trotted out. Uh, the whole city of Houston is a good example. People can look at the founding of what was the capital of Texas. Why did it move around to Austin and back? Um, it's all Masonic, but here's, here's the common sense way you can think about it. So there are biblical ideas like you can't serve two masters and whether or not you're a Christian, that's a pretty no nonsense thing. How do you serve two masters? You can't really. If you're going to be totally loyal to one and the other one tells you to do a thing that doesn't jive, you've instantly got a problem. This is the problem with secret societies. They swear an oath to their secret society to maintain the secrecy and do all the things the society wants. And then they turn around, as we have had so many 33rd degree Masons as president, and they swear to defend the Constitution. Here's the problem. And just an example I could think of off the top of my head. Suppose one of those people breaks the law. They get drug into court. Suppose the courtroom has no Masons in it. From the point of view of the guy who swore an oath to the Masons, every person in that courtroom is profane and that he has sworn he will divulge nothing to profane people. So now even the basic tenets of a law-driven society have broken down simply because a person swore an oath to one of these societies. And this has gone on in this country forever and ever. Um, as far as I know, every recent president has sworn an oath to the Constitution. We've had numbers of them that were also secret societies, like the Bushes, who clearly have sworn oaths to other organizations. And I think this needs to be pointed out, because how is it that such an obvious thing gets overlooked? I mean, what do you guys think? 
Well, Bush Jr. was famously asked by a reporter what the Skull and Bones Society was all about and what they get up to, and his answer was simply, I can't tell you, it's a secret, and it was left at that. I mean, what kind of acceptable answer is that? And in defence of secret societies, a lot of people say that the knowledge that they deal with, which is deeply metaphysical, esoteric, concerning spiritual matters, uh, they say that the average guy in the street, the average member of mainstream society, would not be capable of taking this knowledge on board and applying it in their lives. They're just too profane uh, for it to make any sense to them. So they like to keep it within the confines of those who are of a mind that is able to take this information on board. Well, I don't think anyone has the right to sequester information, particularly when it's potentially empowering and enlightening concerning the human condition and the nature of reality and what this place is really all about. That is information that everyone should have access to. And it's obvious that there would be many people in society who would not want to take that information on board or would not be capable of processing it. But there would also be a great many who would if only they were able to get access to it. So for these groups to feel they have the right to keep that information from others is wrong action, in my view. Again, that's an insight into the elite mentality. It's them and us. They see themselves as godlike. They see the rest of us as profane and just a slave race that is there to be controlled by them. I, I can actually add something pretty critical to the great ideas you just laid down. I've been studying the, the Elysian mysteries um, because I found a trail where it was claimed that all the secret societies at their base have a similar foundation. It can be traced to the hermetic ideas and to, believe it or not, the Elysian mysteries, which is a big group. But here's the thing about the original Elysian mysteries. They were open to everybody. Well, for a period of time, you had to be in the Greek city. And by the way, in the city it's named after, Elysia, or however you pronounce it, um, it was so critically important to be in that geography. As it caught on, then people from all over the world were coming to the point where they can even name the supposed Roman emperors who begged to be uh, initiated into the lesser mysteries and the greater mysteries of the Elysian mysteries, even one emperor being turned down because his hands were dirty. He killed people and he was told to go away um, you're too profane for having done these criminal acts. But here's the point. Women not only held key offices in the initiation of the mysteries, they were all welcome, as were slaves, as were people from anywhere in the world, as long as they passed muster that they were not a criminal or they had murdered someone. So that is a far cry from what we're seeing now. If, in fact, it is true that things like the Elysian Mysteries are the basis for the secret societies that come later, they've been perverted because we can show, um, and we can show through a lot of accounts. Uh, as you know, we've been covering all the old Greek classics and things like this. So many of these guys, even the Roman guys, even Cicero wrote about it. And while they all honored their oath not to specifically divulge per se what the actual initiation was, all the information around it, the offices, who was eligible, when it happened, so much information available and cross-referenced most of it across different authors. My point being, it was aimed at everybody who could simply show they were not a criminal or a murderer. And I mean everybody, even the slaves. Um, and that's a far cry from what's happened here. So you can see the perversion, if it is true, that the basis for these mysteries is what fueled up through Rosicrucianism and all these other things, Freemasonry. 
I think there's elitism within, for example, we could say Freemasonry itself, because most people who are Freemasons don't know diddly. They're going to stop at their third degree where they're considered a master mason. They never choose to go on. They just stay in their, what they call their blue lodge or their home lodge. Now, if they choose to go on, it's really not all that difficult to get all the way up to the 32nd degree, from which point you can also choose to be a Shriner. That's another offshoot. But again, I doubt very much any of them really know anything. It's not, from what I've tried to uncover, suspicious until you get into the 33rd degree, because they're very, very, very selective about who gets that honorary degree. How do you feel about all that, Mark? I think Crow is probably right in that if you got down to the root of all the knowledge and all the wisdom that is propagated by these various mystery schools and secret societies, it's probably the same information, just dressed up differently. You know, different language used, different metaphors applied. But I would suspect it's all to do with the concept of spirit becoming matter and what these physical lives are that we undergo and how we can become more godly and reconnect ourselves back to our higher selves and the spirit world while we're here, while we're in human form. I suspect that is the knowledge that gets taught in all these mystery schools. I can't say that with any authority because I've never been a member of any of these things, despite what some people seem to think. I get accused of being a Freemason all the time. Uh, I was actually invited to join the Masons last year by a low-level one. It was a, a personal associate of mine, and I chose to decline because that's not something I want to get involved in. Now, I think it probably was the case with many of these secret societies, and Freemasonry in particular, it probably did start out with noble aims, and it probably did intend to uplift humanity and uh, apply these great knowledge and wisdoms in their behaviours. But it's clearly been hijacked and steered off uh, by what we think of as the elite class. Now, Freemasonry in particular seems to be a vehicle through which they conduct much of their business. And it was the ideal uh, apparatus or infrastructure for them to want to hijack because it's set up to be all about the keeping of secrets, the swearing of oaths of allegiance. It's about uh, degrees of knowledge. It's a hierarchy. So those at the entry level don't have the knowledge that those at the mid-level do, and they don't have the knowledge that the ones very far up the pyramid do. So it really was the ideal blueprint uh, for them to want to infiltrate and apply to things like, for example, the entertainment industry, where you can bet that all these prominent names, these musicians that have been around forever, they've usually got a sir at the front of their name, uh, I find, when it comes to the British ones, you can bet they're all a part of this. And the Hollywood actors that we all know and hear about all the time, they're going to be a part of this as well. And I think the time has long passed when the secret society structures were used for noble aims and had, a benefic had beneficial goals in mind. It's all about control now. It's all about sequestering information from others. Spot on. And I can actually bolster what you just said. There are endless accounts from the original Elysian mysteries that would take just about anyone, as long as they weren't a murderer or a criminal, and even some people that were considered too profane who were told to go away, clean up their act, come back and prove it, they were allowed in. But here's the thing. There are endless accounts that all the people that had gone through the lesser mystery, I think it was done in the spring, and then the greater mystery was done in the fall, hint, hint, uh, three degrees. Um, I think there's two steps in the second one, the greater mysteries. I've kind of forgotten. But 
um, to a person, according to many of the authors of antiquity, they walked away happy and also trying to better themselves as human beings, and they had gained a newfound lack of fear for death and also had switched their life to trying to do good for others. There are endless accounts of it. So this kind of shows the difference between like almost a, a like I, I use Buddhism as a, the, the example all the time, because regardless of what religion you've chosen, I don't think you can make the argument that if you state your spirituality is for the benefit of all living beings, that is a noble thing. And I don't care who or what you are or what religion you follow. If you say any different, you're not being honest. If a person states, I'm doing all these things for the benefit of all living things in this world, that is a noble thing. And that's how I view the original Elysian mysteries. But there's more. guy named Downard, uh, Shelby Downard, um, you can look him up. They quit publishing everything he wrote in the 80s, and it's almost impossible to get a hold of anything he did write. He's the guy who popped open onomology, which is the kind of magic of names, and toponymy as he called it, which was the magic of places. He did this in Dealey Plaza, hint, hint, hint. Um, he showed what it was all about and what was going on to a degree that is absolutely undeniable. And I would steer people. I, I, you know, I, I guess I can't steer people. Maybe what I'll do is I'll put the name of the one thing you can still search by PDF. If I say it out loud, this will just get censored out. Um, but uh, James Shelby Downard, is the name of the man. And if you do a little research, you'll find out there was another guy who worked with him who's written some things. But the point I'm making is exactly what Mr. Devlin just said is provably true. At some point, there was a switch for the benefit. Like if we initiate all these people, um, they're better human beings and that strengthens society. Somewhere along the line, it got perverted to uh, us and them and we're going to deprive and control became the goal. Um, and a lot of it, is, is geared to the sky clock. In the original Lycian Mysteries, which I'll hint at one more time, the lesser initiation was in the spring and the greater initiation in the fall. And it's all around the myth of Demeter and her daughter Persephone. Persephone gets snatched by Pluto, god of the underworld, probably rapes her, differing versions of that. And Demeter, her mother, a full-fledged goddess, goes looking. And the whole mysteries were set about this. But Demeter is also Ceres. It's where we get the word cereal, grains, if you follow. Now, when I tell you about spring and fall, it starts to mean something more. But uh, Mark, you nailed it on the head. At one point, it was for the benefit of everyone, and it made society stronger, and it removed the fear of death for almost everyone who went through. Well, that's right. And what could be wrong with that? But we're a far cry from it, as you've just said. And I mentioned just a while back the likes of, uh, well, I didn't mention them by name, but I mentioned some of these sirs in rock music circles. So some of the ones I was thinking of were Sir Paul McCartney, Sir Elton John, Sir Mick Jagger. And what connects those three and many others is that we had this concert over the weekend, the One World, or maybe it should have been called New World Order, concert uh, curated by Lady Gaga because you know she's obviously the ideal person for such a job and it was all these rock stars performing for the benefit of everyone on lockdown because they care you know uh, everyone in martial law house arrest forced to be in their homes so you know what could be better 
after 40 odd days of being cooped up in your house with no income, looking at a screen, than uh, continuing to be locked up in your house with no income, looking at a screen for another few hours. So the way it was sold to us was, look, all these famous rock stars are self-isolating and are staying at home, so you should too. I mean, I couldn't bear to watch the thing myself. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. But others have reported to me what went down. And apparently every act that came on was just reciting the mantra, stay at home, save lives, which I could have predicted. So these lifetime actors, the likes of Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger, Elton John, who really believes that they voluntarily put themselves forward to take part in this event, as opposed to it being a requirement of their status? So they've been handed these careers that have lasted decades. They've received knighthoods as a reward for services rendered. Well, it's not my idea of a reward, but it is to some people. And this is the thing with lifetime actors. Their primary role, as we discussed with Bill Gates being the Microsoft guy, is that's the one that's put out to the public. So you think of somebody like Elton John as a music star. You think of somebody like Bono as a rock singer. Uh, But when you look at the extracurricular activities and the agendas that they're wheeled out to prop up, it tells a rather different story. Uh, So Bono is actually a great example because he seems to have spent more time in recent years hobnobbing with the likes of Bill Gates and Bill Clinton and George Bush and the Pope and Obama. You know, he's connected into the United Nations. He's connected into Monsanto. He's connected into the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And he doesn't seem to spend a lot of time being the rock singer with you two anymore. And that's because he never really was that. You know, his mate Bob Geldof was put out there as the lead singer with the Boomtown Rats, despite being a terrible singer. Uh, So we buy into this for a few years. The public get familiar with these people. Uh, Everyone gets to know who Bono is. Everyone gets to know who Bob Geldof is. Then 1984 comes around and it's time for the Band-Aid project, followed by the Live Aid concert. And they need a figurehead to put out to the public. Uh, as the mastermind behind it and to bring all these rock stars together to take part in it. And so Bob Geldof is chosen as the man for the job, despite the fact that he was very far from the most high-profile rock star by 1984. But that's not the point. The point is he had always been groomed for this kind of role and his status as the lead singer with the Boomtown Rats is irrelevant in this whole process, apart from just getting him known to the public. That's the way it works with lifetime actors. So all these rock stars that we saw performing from their living rooms, and by the way, are we to believe that they hooked up all their own technology? They put all the cables in themselves, did they, and worked out how to live stream themselves when they're pushing 80 years old. You know, they can master all that technology. Isn't it far more likely that they had a team of technicians and engineers in their house doing all that for them? And aren't we told that we're actually not supposed to have people in the house? We're told that we're just supposed to have our families there and nobody else can come in. So are they really leading by example? but that's an aside. So there they all are, performing from their homes, just reinforcing this narrative of you shouldn't go out and isn't it great that we can all be at home and connect with each other over screens and who needs social contact anyway when you've got Skype and Zoom and live streams and all these kind of things. So it seems to me that all these guys out there, uh, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, Elton John, all the others were instructed to take part in this thing. You know, the call came in, They don't say no, 
because you can't do that when you're a lifetime actor, when, when you're an asset of the system. And that's how these names always get associated with certain agendas, because that's what they're really required to do. That is the role of a lifetime actor, to reinforce mind control, social conditioning, and push agendas. I think we could ask, do they even own their own identity? We know about admiralty law now, don't we? We know about corporate names. Um, and we know that so many famous people, their stage name is not their real name. Prince is a prime example. So what's being retired when these people go? Is it a persona or a living human being? But there's a good example that demonstrates exactly what you just said, Mark. I'm with you all day long. I think the phone rings and you're told you're under contract, go do this thing and don't give me any lip. If we go back to Houston when the hurricane had hit and they gathered all those celebrities in one place, first of all, it opens up with Stevie Wonder basically insulting everyone, saying everyone that doesn't agree or says anything that isn't in line is stupid or silly, or I forget exactly what he said. But in that, go look at Bruce Willis. There's a man who wishes his life had went a different way, that he didn't pick up the phone and have to go there. He's shooting daggers out of his eyes into the camera. You can go look um, at just a man who wishes he was anywhere else in the world, but where he had to be there. And these are telling things. And we've said, I think the best description of fame that I've ever heard is that what fame is, is it's on loan. And at some point you're giving it back. And this bolsters the idea of a name like Prince or any person who's got a stage name, that that's actually an entity, a fictitious entity that at some point will be retired. The idea behind it is when you're this supposed struggling artist, which we know is nonsense, the big ones are all bloodlined in and you get that first record contract. It's almost like you've been made a king or a queen, isn't it? You don't need a passport anymore. You can afford the most expensive hotel room. Money will not be a problem. You can come and go as you please. You're pretty much above the law, almost like being handed the life of a royal. But at some point, that star that you've been loaned will be given back. And I think that's the best description that I've ever heard. But I'm with you all day. I, I, I am so with you all day. I think it's basically the idea of you're under contract. And when the phone rings, you'll be directed to what you will do next. Well, you don't say no. And you can tell the ones that do say no, because they usually end up dead in bathtubs of some undisclosed overdose or other. Or they end up dying, you know, in bed on Christmas Day, like George Michael did. Or they die in a lift, uh, an elevator, like Prince did. Let me just pick up on that event that you mentioned there and the uh, telethon in the wake of the Hurricane Katrina, because that was the event where you had Kanye West live on TV and he's there alongside Mike Myers, the Austin Powers actor, and they're supposed to be reading from a script where they're reinforcing the official narrative of that event, and Kanye West goes off script. He's all fired up. He's obviously not a great fan of George Bush Jr. because he says, looking straight into the camera, he jettisons the script and he just says, George Bush doesn't care about black people because he's talking about the lack of aid that was given to the city of New Orleans and the large black population down there in the wake of this hurricane. And Mike Myers looks at him like, what the hell are you doing, man? Because he realises he's just gone off script. And Kanye says it twice. And you can bet the producers in the back room are just pulling their hair out and somebody's saying, pull the plug now, pull the plug. And that was live, right? That was live. Yeah, that was live. Otherwise, it would never have gone out. <laughs> Mike Myers like a deer caught in the headlights. And that was the start of Kanye West's downward trajectory 
into the shell, the husk of a human being that he is now. Uh, I think at the time, this was 2005, and he was really flying high then. He'd just emerged as a rapper. He dropped his first two albums, which were actually really good. He'd been a producer for the likes of Jay-Z before this, and his star was really shining bright. But his career from that point on just went down the shitter. And it's obviously as a result of him, uh, his behaviour during that event. So uh, he's very well known, or has been in recent years, for his incoherent rants. So he'll often get up on stage and just rant for like seven or eight minutes, and it's apparently just complete nonsense, although there is stuff in there that you can decode uh, if you know what you're listening to. And so the narrative that's run is that Kanye is just this guy that's very outspoken and he's just a bit crazy, you know? Uh, But there's more to it than that. It's clear that the guy has undergone mind control programming. And it's clear that there have been times in his career where the programming has started to break down and part of his true humanity and his true mind has started to bleed through. And you can hear some of the things that he says when that happens. But they've made an example of Kanye. You know, he's undergone this programming. His public image has been tarnished. He's been demonized in certain quarters. Uh, So you look at him now, you look at any photo or video footage of him, and there's nothing there. You look into his eyes, it's just empty. It's just like there's nothing inside. And that's a prime example of what happens when you go off script and you try and, you know, uh, say your own thing. It's probably the best example we've got of what happens to you when you do that. And it would have been an example to other celebrities or famous people to just stick to the script, do what's asked of you, and everything will be fine. And so this weekend, we had all these artists wheeled out to take part in this concert. And an interesting thing about that, I mentioned that it was curated by Lady Gaga. And a few years ago, she did an interview, it's probably three or four years ago, where she said, I'm tired of just being told what to wear and how to look and what to sing and where to stand and what themes to employ. From now on, I'm in control. I'm taking back control of my own career. Well, it didn't go too well, really, did it? Because here she is heading up this concert and absolutely playing ball, reinforcing the stay at home, save lives narrative. Uh, But I received a bit of information today, which I didn't know. Somebody tipped me off by email and this puts it all into perspective. This person emailed to say the World Health Organization's, so Bill Gates then, goodwill ambassador for mental health is Lady Gaga's mother. Cynthia German Otter. And that tells you so much why she curated that concert. Lifetime actors all the way. Well, she was a nobody that wanted fame just like so many of the others, right? Wasn't she on an MTV reality show or something like that early on before she became a complete nut job with this crazy character that she's got now? The story of how she got started is very interesting because I detailed this in Musical Truth Volume 1. The family of a singer by the name of Lena Morgana accused Stephanie Germanotta, uh, the real name of Lady Gaga, of completely stealing Lena Morgana's persona and her look and her sound and every aspect of her act when she was inventing the Lady Gaga persona for herself. So Lena Morgana was a former friend of Stephanie, Lady Gaga. I think they attended art class or a drama class or something together. And so Lena's career sort of started to get off the ground before Gaga's did. And then uh, Gaga just completely ripped her off. Then Lena Morgana just happens to turn up dead. 
she's apparently fallen from the balcony of this building. And if you watch the video to Lady Gaga's song Paparazzi, you can see that they're parodying the death of Lena Morgana because Gaga's character seems to fall from a balcony and then you see her on the floor like a sort of marionette with all twisted limbs and stuff. It's dark, morbid mockery of what happened to Lena Morgana. So we've got that story of how she got started, but uh, it's not the first time that we've heard a Lifetime actor claim they got, uh, you know, they went from rags to riches and they just worked really hard and climbed their way up the ladder of success because we get this from Madonna as well. Now, Madonna, as bloodline researchers and genealogists have shown is connected into Celine Dion. She's a cousin of Celine Dion. She's a cousin of Ellen DeGenerate. I mean, this is even in the mainstream. There have been articles saying, oh, isn't it amazing that Madonna's cousins with Ellen DeGenerate? Well, not really when you understand the way all this works. And she's also connected into Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, who themselves are related to each other. And they all in turn connect into the Bush family. So Madonna is a bloodline representative. And it was always on the cards that she was going to have a career and be a popular influencer of culture. But back in the early days, she used to tell people that she came to New York from Michigan and she didn't know anyone. She had no money. She just worked really hard. She wanted the fame so much. She networked a bit. She got to know some people, did some demos, recorded some songs, uh, hustled on the streets, and her career just happened to take off. And she just happened to become a multi-million selling worldwide international phenomenon, you know, like you do. So uh, with Lady Gaga, we've got this story connecting into Lena Morgana, which makes out that Gaga was a struggling nobody and it could have gone either way. But I think it was always on the cards that she was going to become a well-known celebrity uh, because of who we now know her mother is. And uh, Madonna has been playing her part in this whole narrative as well. If we think back to the Eurovision Song Contest of 2019, which used to be this horrific, cheesy, corny event that nobody took seriously, it was just really really bad costumes and terrible songs. Well, in recent years, that's become really dark in its themes. It's become satanic ritual in line with the Super Bowl halftime show and the uh, Grammys and the VMAs and all these other events. So last year, you had Madonna coming out. She's bloody 61 or something now, and she's still cavorting around in leotards. It's a terrible thing to see. Uh, So she came out under her Madam X guise. So now she's got a patch over one eye. Go figure. And she's got this alter ego persona of Madam X. So she comes out with a bunch of dancers who are all wearing gas masks. And she sings this song, which on the surface of it is this jolly sort of reggae pop thing. And she's got this uh, reggae guy with her. I can't remember his name. Doesn't even matter because he's so insignificant. And his vocals are bloody drenched in auto-tune anyway. But she's singing this song. And the lyrics go, not everybody here is going to make it. Not everyone is coming to the future. And then she turns around and she blows. And there's a sound like the wind blowing. And all these dancers in gas masks fall to the ground as if they're dying. And then we get the accompanying album, Madam X, which is released around that time. And on the back of the album, she's typing away at a typewriter. Can anyone guess the brand of typewriter that she's typing on? I'll give you a clue. The first name is Smith. So that is either a wild coincidence at odds of several billion to one, or it indicates that Madonna is somebody who moves in such circles as to have had advanced knowledge of what was coming. It's crazy. I was going to point out too the family tree 
that you were so aptly describing also claims ancestry back to Dracula, don't they? Vlad the Impaler. Yeah, they're all connected in. So the Bushes are connected into Obama and Dick Cheney. And in turn, this whole bloodline uh, goes into the Bushes. And then if you go back far enough, you know, it's 12th and 13th cousins and things like this. But the connections are there. So then you get into the British royal family. So Saxe-Coburg-Gotha and the Battenberg bloodlines. And Prince Charles is very proud uh, of his connections to Vlad Dracul. Count Dracula. In an interview several years ago, he proclaimed that he's descended from Vlad the Impaler, on whom the legends of Count Dracula are based. Vlad the Impaler from Transylvania, Romania. Uh, and I hear that he's been made a kind of patron of Transylvania as a result of this bloodline link having been discovered. So there are never any coincidences when it comes to which people pop up in new generations in these prominent influential roles. They do it from generation to generation. You know, one generation, you might have the patriarch of this family who's a prominent politician, and then the next generation, the son will be a prominent rock star. There are many examples of this. Going back to Bono, his real name is Paul Hewson. I did uh, a bit of tracing of his ancestry recently, and the Hewson family family came from England before they migrated over to Ireland. And another splinter of that Hewson bloodline is an Irish politician by the name of Barbara Hewson, who turns out to be a cousin of Bono. And she's someone that is very controversial because she's advocated for abortions and she's advocated for the age of consent to be lowered to, I think it was 13 or 14 or something like that. So she hits the headlines they're in Ireland and she's connected into Bono and it's the same bloodline that goes back many generations and that's the way it always works. Well, I guess that kind of echoes the idea of in certain uh, cultures, the children are told they're men and women at age 13 and 14, right? Um, as a matter of fact, at some point I may cover the Vatican research that I've been doing. Um, guess when old Michelangelo, whoever the heck that was, uh, got picked up by the Medici family, of course, when he was 13, coming of age, hint, hint, hint. So, I mean, you got to wonder how much of what we just said will even be allowed. I mean, the, you could look up almost anything we just laid down in Wikipedia. Some of it maybe you can't, but it goes to show the sign of the times. How hard is it to educate yourself on who the bloodlines of people are? Because it's a telling thing. As far as I know, there are three presidents of the United States that can't be tied directly to British royalty. Um, do you remember if that's correct, Jason? I think it's three of them they can't draw the line on. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And so I mean, what does this tell you? In this country, we all came up being told that elections and democracy and all this was the thing. Anyone can be president. Yeah, anyone can be president. <laughs> and it's provably not true. Sure. Not only is it provably not true when you start to look at the other things you were told in seventh grade, like how the electoral college worked, you begin to realize that your vote doesn't see any of these people. But we're not alone. Mr. Devlin's over in the UK and uh, look what he's been laying down. So with the last, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes here, where do you guys want to go? You know, I'm curious about Bono. He didn't really do any of the crazy, uh, what would you call it, all this uh, humanitarian work that he claims to do in the 80s when U2 was just a big pop rock band. Was he, was he anything like that? Did that not start until the 1990s? No, kind of. Go, go ahead, Mark. He was kind of doing it, wasn't he? 
in the early 80s, when U2 first emerged, they were putting out songs that appeared to suggest that they were politically conscious. You know, songs like Sunday Bloody Sunday and some of these other songs on their early albums. So they present this group to you so you think, oh, these guys are the real deal. These are authentic. These guys are a voice for the people. You know, I'm going to follow these and listen to what they have to say. And that's part of the process of getting them installed in the public mindset as someone you can trust, someone to look up to, someone that can be an icon, someone that can be a personal hero. And they bide their time for many years in so many cases before they start to show their true colours. So I think in Bono's case, it was the early 2000s when he started to get involved with the United Nations and all these different New World Order agendas. So he's been on the scene for almost 20 years by that point. But this is the way they do it. They get you familiar with these people. They get you to like them. And then they start to show their true colours. Michael Stipe of REM would be another one. He cropped up early in this current narrative as well, as I've mentioned on previous shows, round about the 17th of March, just as these countries were preparing to go into lockdown. He put out a video where he's singing his song, It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. You know, the REM song. And he's got this big Dupas Delight smile on his face that he can't conceal. And he's talking about how all the pubs have just been closed forcibly in Ireland on St. Patrick's Day. Now, if they tried to close the pubs in Ireland on St. Patrick's Day, maybe 30 years ago, there would have been a revolution on the streets overnight. So to me, it speaks to how that nation has had such a social engineering job done on it in recent times. People have been softened up so that they don't revolt when all the pubs close on St. Patrick's Day. They're just complying with the tyranny. So Michael Stipe is saying, don't worry, don't worry, we'll celebrate in four months with this big smirk on his face. So four months on from March is July. So he seems to be suggesting that in July, we'll all be able to go back out to bars and pubs and stuff. Now, is he someone that also has inside knowledge of this narrative? And so he knows how it's going to play out. So he can say that with some confidence. I guess we'll know by July. But the point is, we've always thought of him as the frontman of REM. But here he is playing a part in this whole agenda. And when you do the research into his family background, you find, would you believe it? His father was in the military. He had military roles. He was involved with uh, flying helicopters in Vietnam, apparently. And you find out that Michael Stipe is just another bloodline, lifetime actor, and they're the only ones we get to see. They're the ones that get the airtime. And anyone that's not playing ball and hasn't got with the program just won't get put on TV. I kind of feel sorry for Michael Stipe. He must have had a stressful life, right? It cost him all his hair. Would you believe? Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I would also point out uh, about you too. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mark. Those Live Aid, Live Aid, th those things started up in the 80s, didn't they? Um, because people have done work to show where the money raised from some of those concerts actually went. And if I'm not mistaken, you two was, was it Darfur? I can't remember. Um, but I do remember the guy uh, Eldoff was, was involved in all that. If I'm not mistaken, the idea of using entertainment to raise huge amounts of money for supposed poor people, that, that's a late 80s thing, isn't it? Well, the mid-80s. So the Band-Aid project that Geldof helmed was December 1984, and it was in response to Ethiopian famine. And it really was a groundbreaking thing because never before had a charity record on this scale been done, and never before had so many famous people come together for a cause. And as usual, it guilt trips the public into parting with their money. So we had all this harrowing footage of children starving in Africa on our TVs, and then Bob Geldof pops up and says, come on, we can't have this. 
this. You know, everyone, you're going to have to give your money to help these people. And he brings all these rock stars together to make the Christmas charity record. Do they know it's Christmas? Then the following summer, 1985, he's got the big Live Aid concert. There was one in Wembley, London, and the American one was in Philadelphia. And all the big names from the scene at that time were involved. And I think that was a watershed moment because that's the first time we saw so many of these, what we now understand to be lifetime actors, all being pulled together and instructed to take part in these events. I mean, he even used this language. When Geldof was giving interviews at the time, he said he told these musicians they're taking part. You know, he would phone up Boy George and Simon Le Bon of Duran Duran and he said, you're on this record. You're going to be at the studio on Sunday. You're not saying no. So he's letting you know that they had no choice but to be involved in these things. And many of these artists said afterwards, you don't say no to Bob Geldof. (laughs) So who is this guy really? a little bit more than a bedraggled singer from an Irish new wave band. So that was the mid-80s, and they've just been hyping up the use of the celebrities to prop up different agendas since then, usually tied into the United Nations and these New World Order master plans more often than not. That's when it started, and it's been continuing to this day. Well, people haven't, I, I don't remember for sure, but I'm reasonably sure people did work on on one or two of those things to track where the money actually went. And they were claiming things like it was going to the WHO or something like this. But a similar thing happened in Katrina. Uh, The Red Cross came on and asked for all this money, which is also what they were doing in Houston around that hurricane. But if I remember correctly, in the Red Cross, they found out that they were saying the money would go to Katrina, and it didn't. And I think actually one of the CEOs of the Red Cross supposedly lost their job. But do you recall what I'm getting at here? Some of those Live Aid or something, someone after the fact tracked where the money went. Remember anything about that? In very recent years, researchers have delved into exactly what happened to much of that money. And I don't have any articles in front of me, but just going from memory, they found out that a lot of the money raised was given to, I think it was the dictator, the leader of Ethiopia at the time. He was just handed this money to do with uh, as he saw fit. And apparently he was this despotic kind of leader that just oppressed his people and stuff. So the money didn't go to help those most in need. And I've heard other stories that money raised went towards the purchase of arms and it just went anywhere other than uh, vital medical supplies and food supplies for people that were starving. And then the same thing happened with the BBC comic relief. This is a charity thing that they do every year. You know, those nice people at the BBC because they just care about us. They're just really nice people with big hearts that care. You know, that's why they do these things. So they have this annual thing, comic relief, and it's uh, comedians just being stupid and trying to raise money. It's called Red Nose Day. And that's where they coerce the public into putting these stupid red noses on their faces. You know, uh, every time you get one of these agendas, the public are always coerced into complying with, uh, you know, the mind control. So at the moment, with the situation that we have, people are going out every Thursday at 8pm and they're clapping for the NHS, the National Health Service in Britain. Of course, the NHS can't actually hear them clapping. And uh, at a time when we're told we've got to stay indoors because we've got to help prevent the spread of this deadly virus, they're telling everyone to go outside at the same time and all stand around next to each other clapping their hands. But nevertheless, when it comes to the comic relief thing, investigators found that a lot of that money was going towards arms and the purchase of drugs and all this sort of thing. So all these things are corrupt to the core. Mark, take a moment to give out your contact info, please. 
My main website is markdevlin.co.uk and that's the hub for my various activities. I post my videos and podcasts up there. My YouTube channel is youtube.com slash TV, and I put up a rant video last week. It's just a furious rant. I just got back from the supermarket and I was exploding. I was just unloading with anger at all the stupidity. That really seems to have been popular. So many people have reached out to me and they've said, you've articulated exactly how we feel about all this nonsense and we're sick of it. We're not prepared to take it anymore. So that's an encouraging sign. And all those videos are on my YouTube channel. Other than that, I've got a Spreaker page and that's where all my podcasts and all my radio interviews and all my audio content resides. So that's Spreaker.com. Just do a search on there for Mark Devlin and you'll find my stuff. My email address is markdevlinuk at gmail.com for anyone that wants to reach out. And I've got the books, Musical Truth Volumes 1 and 2, and I've just dropped my new novel, The Cause and the Cure. So they're all available via Amazon, or if anyone wants to get a copy from me direct, they can drop an email to markdevlinuk at gmail.com, and I'm happy to post those out to anywhere. All right, guys, that brings our one of 213. We're going to have to wrap, but when we come back, we're going to be able to talk a lot more freely Uh, I'm almost wondering if I'm just going to have to run this one differently. Um, As people are aware who use YT, there's a new self-assessment nonsense you've got to do. And I've self-assessed two clips now, and the last one was manually confirmed by hand as the iron fist of tyranny comes to a computer near you. But anyhow, join us over at crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W 777radio.com. That is the only true Crow site, and there are now fraud sites doing bad things. So again, the only true site is crow777radio.com. This would be a good one to join us for hour two. Uh, We've got Mr. Devlin, who doesn't mess around. That's why we had him with us at Shoot the Moon NYC. And we're going to lay down some things. And you can tell by the tone and tenor of what we laid down in hour one, uh, you got to do what you got to do to communicate. But in hour two, we breathe a thing called free air. So there it is, man. Join us over at crow777radio.com for hour two of episode 213. Cheers. Oh, yeah.